Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor at Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. So we're in John chapter 18 again this week. John 18. Last week we studied that passage of Scripture where Peter denied Jesus three times. We're jumping forward toward the end of the chapter now to verses 33 through 38 in John chapter 18. Part two of this new series called His Last Days. We're going to be studying the last four chapters of the book of John more in depth in the weeks to come. You know, throughout history, religious leaders, teachers, philosophers, mentors, well, and pretty much anybody with a computer and a Facebook account have claimed to show people the truth. But you know, there's only one man in history who actually claimed to be the truth. And he's the one who's the focus of our study today. Now, in a Bible study that was published a couple of years ago called The Beauty of Restoration, a pastor named Timothy McCown mentions that above the south entrance of the main building and tower at the University of Texas is the inscription, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It was inscribed on that building in 1935 after a lot of deliberation. And John William Calhoun, who would later become the university's 11th president, was the one who had suggested the passage from John 8:32, not really meant as a religious message, but something appropriate for students who would be going into the university's library. So, the passage was selected, but one key word was left out of the passage. You see, when you read John 8.32 in context with the previous verse, what you get is a conditional statement, a if-then statement. If this is the case, then this must be true. The two verses together say this, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, in today's passage, we find Roman Governor uh, Pontius Pilate had asked a question that, that's frequently asked on college campuses, not always answered correctly. But the question is, what is truth? Of course, Pilate was actually speaking to the Son of God, who was truth incarnate. A lot of people today, uh, as in Pilate's day, they don't really know the truth because well, they don't hold to the teachings of Christ, and they aren't willing to be His disciples, and so they're not free. They don't have the hope of relationship with God like we do. And that really brings me to the big idea behind today's passage, that listening to Jesus' voice will connect us to the truth, to the point that we not only long for the truth, but belong to the truth. And in our text today, we're going to explore three questions, three major questions that Pilate asked in the text. Question number one, are you a king? Look at verses 33 and 34. There in verse 33, Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? 
Now this passage actually marks the first of five times that Pilate would go in and out from his palace to deal with this matter of what shall we do with this Jesus guy? Now the Jews, they knew that Pilate would not be convinced about Jesus having violated some religious laws. And so they trumped up this charge of a crime worthy of execution. Luke 23, 2 says this, it says, he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be a Messiah, King. And all four of the Gospels have Pilate asking the same question. Are you the king of the Jews? In fact, that charge would ultimately be inscribed above Jesus' head when he was crucified on the cross. King of the Jews. But the question on the table is, is Jesus a king? Well, we know from the very beginning that he was a king. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, the angel Gabriel told Mary that the Lord God will give her child the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. When the Magi came to Jerusalem seeking the Christ child, they asked, where is this one who has been born king of the Jews. Now you remember that didn't sit too well with, with Herod the Great. He got all worked up because the Roman Senate had declared that Herod was the actual king of the Jews, a title that he guarded very jealously. He was so infuriated at the thought of having to share that title with the mere child that he actually executed all of the males in Bethlehem ages two and under just to eradicate any rivals to that title, King of the Jews. Of course, in Pontius Pilate's day, any claim of being a king rivaled Rome itself and its, its emperor, uh, emperor Tiberius uh, Caesar Augustus. So later on, in an effort to rally the Roman governor, Pilate, to their cause, the Jewish religious leaders would shout, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. That's John 19, 12. See, Pilate wanted to find out just who this supposed king of the Jews was. Of course, you and I, we know who Jesus was. We know who he is. Matthew chapter 16, standing in front of a place of pagan worship, Jesus asked the disciples who the people thought he was. Well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. But when asked the question, are you king of the Jews? Jesus turned the question back to Pilate. Verse 34, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? I mean, in essence, Jesus is saying, as governor, have you ever heard that I tried to overthrow Roman power? Has it ever been reported to you that, that I proclaim myself a king? who would try to undermine Caesar's power, his empire? Is this a charge that you know by personal experience? Or is it just that you've heard some things from these Jewish religious leaders that they're saying about me? 
Okay, so the answer to Pilate's question is, of course he's a king. He's king of the Jews. But not just king of the Jews, he's our king, believers. Yes, king of the Jews, king of our hearts, and he is the reigning sovereign king of the universe. Revelation chapters 17 and 19, we find Jesus conquering the enemies of God and being celebrated in heaven because he is king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is the rightful king, lord, ruler over our lives. But the question you have to ask yourself is, are you surrendering to his lordship over your life? So here in verses 33 and 34, we find the question, are you a king? But then here's the second question that Pilate asked of Jesus. What have you done? Look at verse 35. I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. Now, Pilate's question there of, I'm not a Jew, am I? It was rhetorical. I think it was definitely sarcastic. I mean, he, he was implying that he was way too important to be bothered with all this local Jewish business. But the next question he asked was even more loaded than Pilate himself realized it to be when he said, what have you done? Now, Jesus could have answered with, uh, well, how much time you got? <laughs> but Pilate probably wasn't wanting him to, to answer the question, what good have you done? He's probably thinking, dude, what in the world did you do to get these Jewish religious types all worked up? What evil could you possibly have perpetrated to deserve arrest and trial and being brought to the Romans for execution? And the answer, of course, is nothing. Of course, you know, as believers, we could talk all day long about the good that Jesus has done, and not just the good that he did in the historical accounts in the Bible during his time on earth, but all the stuff that he's done for us personally. In fact, John chapter 21, verse 25, the gospel of John ends with this very beautiful and thought-provoking statement. There are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. And 2,000 years later, we're still writing books about all that Jesus has done, both in his time on earth, but also in our lives and the hearts and lives of his children, his, his followers. Now in verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, I find it kind of peculiar that despite all that Jesus said in his teachings about the kingdom of God, all of the parables that he used to describe the kingdom, many of his contemporaries 
friend and foe alike, still really had no grasp of what his kingdom was really all about. They didn't fully understand what Jesus had done. And they certainly weren't going to understand what he was about to do, what he would soon accomplish on the cross with his burial and, and resurrection. I mean, none of that was obvious to Pilate or, or to, the, to the demons, to the devil himself. It was a mystery. In fact, the Apostle Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8. He says, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery. A wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, everything that Jesus had done was for good. Not for evil, the way that the Jewish religious leaders had falsely claimed. Jesus was indeed a mystery to Pilate. But I think perhaps one of the greatest mysteries is the one that 700 years before he was even born foreshadowed what Jesus would do for you and I. One of the most well-known messianic prophecies in the Bible, Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6 says he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Now Jesus reveals a little bit of the mystery here in verse 36 when he says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. In other words, his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his impending death by crucifixion, all of those are actually proof that his kingdom is from another place. And I find it mind-boggling that all of this, all of Christ's trials, his suffering, were part of God's greater plan for our redemption and restoration. A beautiful mystery. I mean, think about it. How many kings would willingly die for all of their subjects? What did you do, Jesus? What have you done? I think that's a question that we need to ask him ourselves. One morning, R.C. Chapman, a devout Christian, was asked how he was feeling. I'm burdened this morning, was his reply. But his happy expression really contradicted his words. So his friend said in surprise, are you really burdened? Yes, but it's a wonderful burden. The burden is an overabundance of blessings for which I cannot find enough time or words to express my gratitude. And seeing the puzzled look on the face of his friend, Chapman added with a smile, I'm referring to Psalm 68, 19. Blessed be the Lord. Day after day, he bears our burdens. God is our salvation. What did Jesus do? He bore our burden. Christians, let's take inventory of all the things that he's done for us. 
the salvation that he's granted us, the myriad ways that he has blessed us, and the things that he's done through us to bring glory to his name. And once we've made an inventory of all those things, let's praise him for that. Now verse 37 says, you are a king then. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. But you see, here's the thing about Jesus' kingdom. It's not really concerned with soldiers and horses and chariots and, and armies, swords, shields. It's concerned with the truth. And that really leads us to our big, big question. Question number three, what is truth? Jesus says in verse 37, the end of verse 37, I was born for this and I have come into the world for this to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? said Pilate. After he'd said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. Now, as you read the Gospels, you find on 11 distinct occasions, Jesus made purpose statements, statements that detailed just why he had come into our world. Uh, for example, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Well, in response to Pilate's question here in verse 37, Jesus now makes another one of those purpose statements for why he was born why he came to us, so that he could testify to the truth. <laughs> what truth? Well, the truth about God, about his kingdom, about Christ himself, about the Holy Spirit, about man, sin, salvation, all of the stuff, all the core doctrines we find in the word of God. He came to testify to all of it. And then at the, at the end of verse 37, Jesus said, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Why do people listen to him? Because he's full of the truth. John said that very clearly. John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. People listen to his voice and those that listen to his voice love the truth because he is truth. He said it himself in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I don't think that Pontius Pilate was really ready to come to grips with that reality. In the 1992 military courtroom thriller, A Few Good Men, a very green Navy lawyer, Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, defends two Marines who have been accused of the wrongful death of a fellow Marine. And in the climactic scene, Caffey cross-examines a very, very haughty, very contentious Marine colonel, Colonel Nathan Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson. And Caffey knows Jessup is hiding something. There's an unspoken truth regarding the young soldier's untimely death. And so he presses harder, goading Jessup, provoking him until Jessup finally blurts out, you want the truth? 
I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Now, I think there's one of two dynamics at play here. Number one, that Pilate can't handle the truth. The, the, the possibility of who Jesus is. Didn't know that the living, absolute embodiment of divine truth was staring him right in the face. Or, number two, he really didn't care. Now, I get the distinct impression that Pilate, he's being a bit flippant, probably even sarcastic with all of his questions. Are you a king? What did you do? Am I a Jew? What is truth? See, Pilate's not a guy thirsting for the truth, like a man who has searched for it his entire life in vain. He's pretty much indifferent about the whole affair. I think that's why he just, he turned to the Jews in verse 38 and said, I find no grounds for charging him. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you own a smartphone? Just do like this. How many of you have your smartphone in your hand right now? <laughs> How many of you are live tweeting during the, no, don't answer that. <laughs> don't answer that. By the way, did you turn your ringer off before the service started? Because, because it is Super Bowl Sunday, there is a, a new regulation that's been put into place. Any illegal use of cell phones will extend the sermon by another 15 minutes. And we don't want any 15-minute penalties. Well, here's the thing. We live in the information age. Pretty much anything you want to know is available to you, thanks to the Internet. And if you have a smartphone... That vast wealth of information you can hold right in the palm of your hand. But information doesn't necessarily equate to wisdom. And information certainly does not always equate to truth. Now, Pilate possessed all sorts of information, but that didn't mean that he recognized truth. And maybe he didn't care which is why he glibly said, what is truth? But let me tell you, truth is a big deal. The apostle John used the Greek word for truth 45 times in his gospel and in his three epistles. It was a big deal to him. It ought to be a big deal to us. Pilate's question, what is truth? I mean, it's just as important today as it ever was. And I don't think enough people actually take that question seriously. Postmodernism says, well, my own experience determines my reality. That's your truth, man, not mine. There is no absolute truth. And yet Pilate had just had a close encounter with absolute truth. Jesus. Now, today, while we don't have Jesus, the truth incarnate, physically walking among us, you know what we do have? We possess his spirit. Jesus promised, John 16, 13, that he would send his spirit, and that when the spirit comes, and he calls it the spirit of truth, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So we've got this spirit of truth living within us. And you know what, else, know what else we've got? We have the word of God. And it was God-breathed. It was authored by that spirit of truth. John chapter 17, 
we find Jesus praying for all believers. And there in verse 17, he asked the Father to sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. A lot has been written about the relationship between evangelist Billy Graham and his friend Charles Templeton, most notably in Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Faith. Templeton was a very close friend and associate of, of Billy Graham's back in the 1940s. He powerfully preached to large crowds and major arenas. In fact, some say that at that point in time, Templeton was probably a more dynamic preacher than even Billy Graham was. But intellectual doubts began to nag at Charles. He saw evil and suffering in the world, and he couldn't reconcile it with the goodness of God. Templeton wrote, I started considering the plagues that sweep across parts of the planet and indiscriminately kill, more often than not painfully, all kinds of people, the ordinary, the decent, and the rotten. And it just became clear to me that it's not possible for an intelligent person to believe that there is a deity who loves. And as a result, Charles questioned the truth of Scripture and other core Christian beliefs. In fact, regarding Jesus, Templeton said this, he was the greatest human being who's ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered. He is the most important human being who has ever lived. But Charles Templeton did not believe that Jesus Christ was the divine son of God. And so he resigned his pastorate. He became a news commentator, not only abandoning his faith, but becoming a very vocal critic of Christianity. And he attempted to persuade Billy Graham to do the same. Charles said to Billy, Billy, you're 50 years out of date. People no longer accept the Bible as being inspired the way you do. In fact, he would later say of his friend Billy, he committed intellectual suicide by closing his mind. Now, Billy was already struggling with, with concepts of the Bible that he'd held since childhood, especially the inspiration and the authority of the Scriptures. And, and Templeton's attacks just brought that struggle to a climax. Billy Graham realized that if he couldn't trust the Bible, he could not continue his ministry. And in his distress, he began to study, to review what Jesus said about the scriptures. And then walking alone into the woods one night outside a retreat in the San Bernardino Mountains, he stopped by a stump, placed his open Bible on that stump, and he began to pray, crying out to God. He said, God, there are many things in this book that I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. I can't answer some of the philosophical and, and psychological questions Charles has raised. But then Billy Graham fell to his knees 
And the Holy Spirit really moved in him as he said, Father, I am going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts. I will believe this to be your inspired word. And Billy would write in his autobiography, Just As I Am, that as he stood up, his eyes stung with tears, but he felt the power and presence of God in a way that he had not in months. You see, Jesus came to testify to the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus prayed that prayer in John 17 then, and he's at the right hand of the Father, still praying it right now. Three questions. Are you a king? What have you done? What is truth? Now, what are the implications of those questions for us? Question one, are you a king? Is Jesus the ruler and Lord of all of your life? Are there certain parts of your life that you've tried to keep away from him? Dark corners of your heart that you're not willing to surrender to him? If he's not Lord of all your life, turn over every area of your life to your personal Lord and Savior. Question two, what have you done? What has Jesus done in your life? Take an inventory. Get a legal pad and a couple of pens and just start writing. Take an inventory of your own life, of all the things that you've seen him do in your life and the lives of your friends and loved ones, the answered prayers that you've seen, the ways that he's blessed you, and praise him for where he has taken you so far. Question three, what is truth? Maybe there's an area in your life relating to God or Christ or the Holy Spirit or the Word of God that has created some doubt for you. Like Billy Graham, why not give that doubt to the Lord in prayer and then trust in the truth of His Word. Ask His Holy Spirit to show you what's true and what's not. Folks, trusting God is not intellectual suicide. In fact, it's quite the opposite. In the 11th century, a guy named Anselm, the Archbishop of Canterbury, would write, credo ut intelligam. Okay, that's Latin. It means I believe in order to understand. In other words, faith comes first, then understanding. I choose to put my faith in him, then I trust that he is going to open my mind to understand what I need to understand. The truths that he wants me to see to embrace. Of course, the greatest truth of all is Jesus himself. Fully God, fully man, and the only way to salvation. So how can we embrace the truth of who Jesus is in a practical way? First of all, we have to surrender. We have to surrender to the authority of King Jesus and align our lives to him and to his word. 
He is Lord. He is master. He is the boss, the one who calls the shots. Verse 37 says we listen to his voice. And so we wholeheartedly embrace the call to follow our king, abandoning earthly allegiances that stand between us and him. In other words, everything else, every other priority becomes second place. So we surrender to King Jesus. And then we shine. As kingdom citizens, we are called to champion the truth of Christ and to reflect the character of Christ. And you know what? The darker this world gets, the brighter we're going to shine, y'all. We shine and then we share. Folks, we are called to bear witness to the truth of who Jesus is. He is king. He is truth. And to share that boldly with the world. We have been entrusted with the message of his saving power and redemption. Is the spirit of truth directing your life? Or, or do you even know the truth? A pilot refused the truth. And I think there's a whole world full of people just like Pilate who just kind of sneer at Jesus. What is truth? But even if they do recognize the truth, truth isn't going to make an impact in our lives if we won't embrace it. And so here's the simple truth that I want you to embrace today. The truth that there is a God who loves you. The truth that he loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus for you to be the model of, of holiness, to show us how to live, how to worship, how to interact with one another, to live out the truth for us. The Bible says that Jesus was sinless, he was innocent, and that's what qualified him to be the perfect Lamb of God, the, the, the unblemished sacrifice that would erase the sin of the world. Is Jesus king? Are his works good? Is he truth? Yes, yes, and yes. But is he? king of your heart. You see, you can humbly, worshipfully bend the knee before him as king now, or you can bow before him in shame at the judgment. As Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is Jesus king? Is he ruler? Is he Lord of your life? Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you and you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. 
Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. For more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.